Some of you are visitors, uh, some first time, and we welcome you in the name of the Lord. We're happy to have you here. Uh, and I want to give a word of explanation. There, you'll notice there are things we do different at this church, and some of them have to do with clothing. Some of them have to do with instruments that we use in worship. Some of them have to do with uh, the immediacy and intimacy of the way that I preach. All of these things are intentional. They're not accidents. They're not because we haven't ourselves been in churches that are more formal, uh, better dressed, uh, more classically inclined in instrumentation. But they're all an attempt on our part to keep this from being a dramatic play, an act of theater, and to make it real. And we believe that in church, you ought to have a sense that this is just exactly what you live every other day of the week, every other hour of every day, except um, this thing has been driving me crazy all day. Maybe that'll help. Um, Except that it's a place where it's absolutely guarded from having the lies of the world and the pride of life enter in. And so today, much of what's gone on in, in, in churches is that churches have become a place where you put on a museum piece of drama. <laughs> you know, where everything about church is set up in such a way to make you feel that you're living in another day and another time, and then you go out and live normal lives. So you wear special clothes for church, have special instruments, not the instruments you listen on your radio every day. Um, you know, and, and you never, ever act as if what we all think and, and, and believe, we, we think and believe. You act as if we all think and believe the very opposite of how we live our lives. And today's a great example of this, because today we're going to have a sermon that's focused on motherhood. Now, why would we do that? Well, because motherhood is, is the bastard profession in America today, meaning it's completely unvalued. Nobody claims it. Nobody loves it. Everybody does it. It's, it's amazing. Even actresses do it. But they try to act like they're not. You know, they do it late and only in desperation and then immediately hire nannies to take over once they've done it. And so it's good in the church for us to come back to motherhood and to honor mothers. Now, how many of you have mothers that you love? That's a pretty safe one, isn't it? One of the wonderful things about Scripture is Scripture is never... Um, a flight of fancy. Scripture is never a dream, a mist, a vapor. It's never sentimental. It's never, ever, ever a Hallmark card. Scripture is very, very real. And I want to just have one verse as our sermon text today. And it's found in 1 Peter, and it's verse 7. And this is the Word of God, and so it is eternally true. It says this, it says, You husbands likewise live with your wives in an understanding way as with a weaker vessel. Now, you'll see up there it says as with someone weaker. I'm reading the NASB. Uh, that's the updated 90, 1995 edition. Why they changed it from the proper translation to that, I don't know. The proper translation is weaker vessel. All right. Um, it's not someone. Live with your wives in an understanding way as with a weaker vessel. So I'm going to go back to the old NASB prior to 95 translation. As with a weaker vessel, since she is a woman, and grant her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life so that your prayers may not be hindered. 
And so what we have here is an instruction to one sex, namely men, and, and to one specific category of that sex, namely husbands, that they are to live with their wives in an understanding way, granting her honor. And then there are four reasons given why they're to live with her in an understanding way, granting her honor. And what are those four reasons? Well, reason number one is, likewise, in the same way, you see it says at the beginning, in and under in the same way that's reason one and what it's showing you is that just as wives have the command earlier in the chapter to submit to their husbands to honor them so husbands have a command which is to live with them in an understanding way and to honor them so it's in the same way that's the first reason that you're to do what it says because you have just as clear commands given with just as much authority as the wife has it's very common today for men to think, well, I'm the boss man, Christian men, and so I can beat my wife. One of the things you'll find is statistics show that men who beat their wives will frequently talk about the fact that God made them the head of the home. All right? And no wonder people hate male headship because the man who beats his wife then says, well, God made me the head of the home. In other words, I can do what I want. No, you can't. In the same way, in other words, as your wife is to submit to you, in the same way, you are to honor her. You are to live with her in an understanding way. So in other words, God is over every authority and will hold that authority accountable for how that authority lives with the one who is weaker under them. And so reason number one is no man ever has the prerogative of using his authority in an abusive way. Never. Because God will, I mean, let, let, me, let me say it directly. God will get him. He'll get him good. All right? Number two, we're to live with her in an understanding way because it is in the same way as she lives with us, according to God's command. Number two, we are to live with her in an understanding way as with someone weaker since she is a woman. God has made woman weaker than man. Notice the word. The word is not weak. The word is weaker. And so the question is obviously weaker than whom? And the answer is weaker than even the man is. In other words, you are a man and you are pathetically weak. <laughs> Now, you'll hear it in a few minutes. I'm not talking about Woody Allen week. That's despicable. Okay? I'm talking about the, weak, the weakness God gave you. And that weakness is what? Number one, you're subject to temptations. You're a sinner. Number two, you will die. And number three, until you finally die, you will live in sickness and in sadness. And you say, well, that's a nasty view on life. And I say that's what we got from the fall. Number one, in the same way as she is under God's authority and has to do what he says, so you are under authority and have to do what he says. Number two, live with her as someone weaker since she is a woman. Number three, not simply because she's weaker, but also because she is a fellow heir of life, of the grace of life. In other words, the woman does have weakness when it comes to her biological and psychological destiny. But she has perfect equality under the grace of God. Perfect. She is, you remember, in Christ there's neither slave nor free, Jew nor Greek, male nor female. All right? 
And so she is a fellow heir, a co-heir with Christ. And number four, because if we don't obey this command, God's going to get us. And he's going to get us by not hearing our prayers, by hindering our prayers. If we want our prayers to not be hindered, we need to obey this command. All right? So the four reasons are because just as she has commands, you have commands and you do them. Likewise, as she's to do them. Second, she is weaker because she's a woman. Third, she's a co-heir, a joint heir, a fellow heir of the grace of life. And fourth, if we don't obey this command, our prayers will be hindered. Now, I want to make a notice, a note about something as, as we enter into our text, and it is this. Um, all through Scripture, there are unique commands given that tell us what the life of faith is. In America today, God is a mist and a vapor, and faith is an emotion, a feeling, and a sentiment. Nothing has substance, nothing at all. And so if I were to ask you, you know, who is a Christian? You'd say, well, a Christian is somebody that believes in Jesus. And I say, how do you know if they believe in Jesus? And you'd say, well, you know, that they've prayed the sinner's prayer. How do you know if they prayed the sinner's prayer sincerely? Well, I don't think that's our I don't think we should ask that question. And so what we do is we remove any hard content from anything. But the Bible never does this. The Bible says to us what? If you look earlier in your bulletin at our call to worship, you hear this. This is what our call to worship says. It says, whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. And isn't that we, we all want to be born again? I mean, what's the point of the Christian faith if it's not to give us new birth and heaven? Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God, and whoever loves the Father loves the child born of him. By this we know that we love the children of God, whom, when we love God and observe his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. For whoever is born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Okay, so belief, God, his Son, his children, other people born of him, and faith, all woven together into obedience. You can't separate them, all right? Protestants like to think that only Catholics have to obey, and Protestants just believe. It's a lie from hell. You cannot have faith if you don't believe. Now, you say, well, what are we, or if you don't obey, and you say, well, what are we supposed to obey? And the Bible lowers itself to our weakness by giving us very specific commands, and the New Testament is filled with them. All the epistles have command after command after command after command. You never get doctrine without command. All right. The point of doctrine is to lead you into fulfilling your life of faith by specifically obeying. And so here we read in our text that we have commands for both sexes and commands that are unique to each sex. And all through Scripture, through the New Testament, we find that godliness consists of specific actions, specific character traits for specific persons and specific callings. For elders, for deacons, for Titus, to women, for children, for slaves, for masters, for mothers, for fathers, for widows, for wives, and for husbands. Holiness never exists in a vacuum. Holiness is not tingling feelings up the nape of the neck when we read the Bible or sing, Great is thy faithfulness, or we will dance. Holiness is godly character traits and actions done by specific people in the specific callings that God has given them. Never does Scripture tell us to live by faith without telling us what faith is and what fruit it will produce. Faith without works is dead, as James tells us, and the works faith produces are of the most menial, concrete, organic, pedestrian, bloody, and sweaty sort. 
Things like forgiveness and work and obedience and taking out the garbage. Things like making soup and combing our child's hair and moving car seats. Things like life. Welcome back. Things like life, not like what? Movies. Movies are all about the critical moments, the kairos. Movies are about glory and shame, but life is rarely, and for some folks, life is never like that. Most people don't die in a blaze of heroic glory, but when they're old and decrepit and unable to move or breathe. If you're waiting for poetry before you'll live your life, you'll die as the narrative spins out. And as you die, you'll wonder when it all happened and where you were while it happened. Life, that is. And so in his great kindness, God tells us what the life of faith is. And it's here at these practical points that holiness and sanctification are produced and are proven. And so here we have... The statement, you husbands in the same way, live with your wives in an understanding way, as with someone weaker, since she is a woman, and show her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life so that your prayers will not be hindered. Now, right before we have this statement, Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you have become her children if you do what is right without being frightened by any fear. And so even in the phrase that comes immediately before our text, we see the intrinsic weakness and vulnerability of woman. Because she's told to submit, and then she's told, don't give way to fear without being frightened by any fear. And isn't this absolutely where we live our lives? The minute you take a job, you think, oh, no, what is my boss going to be like? And you fall into fear. The minute you get married, you think, oh, no, what is my husband going to be like? Because you promise that you will submit to him. And so it's natural that when we get married, we think, oh, no, what did I do? Right? And it's natural for us to give in to fear God, God, in all his glory, in all his power, the one who made us. God says, don't give in to fear. You know who is the most beautiful, vulnerable person in the world is the person who doesn't cover their vulnerability with aggression, but simply takes it. I was so impressed with my son, Taylor, this last week. (laughs) One of the privileges of being a pastor's child is you get to be talked about publicly. And this is a good one. This last week, Taylor was playing baseball. And apparently he's not very good at baseball because he told me that as he was hitting the ball and he 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 was getting the bat on the ball. Did you hear this yet? Yeah. As he's hitting the ball, what does he do? Well, the minute he hits it, he lets go of the bat. And it goes flying every time he's at bat. And all the other kids are really furious at him. You know, Taylor, stop throwing the bat, you know. Well, finally, he, he, he really, he gets on it. He gets on it good. He hits the ball. And he doesn't, he tells me after I hit the ball, I don't remember anything after that, you know. The ball goes flying and hits a kid right in the chest and just knocks him, knocks him on his rear end. Oh, what did I say? The ball? The bat. Not the ball. The bat. <laughs> the bat. So he let it fly. It hits a kid in the chest, knocks him on his rear end. And Taylor goes over and says, are you all right? Or no, did it hurt? 
And the guy says, you bet it hurt, and punches him in the chest. (laughs) Well, that's all pretty much normal. But then I said to Taylor, so what did you do? Because that's what I wanted to know as his dad. He had it coming, didn't he? And I wanted to know how he took it. And he said, well, I said, did you punch him back? And he said, no. I said, did you say anything? He said, no. He said, I realized that, that, I, that I had it coming. And then he told me it was a kid that doesn't like him and he doesn't like the kid. And I thought, praise God, our children aren't necessarily going to be the way we are. <laughs> I tell you, never in a million years would I have kept my mouth shut. Never. And so you look at woman and her vulnerability as a mother, and you look at the women who have a nasty husband, and they don't return evil for evil, but rather good. And it's such a beautiful thing to see somebody in a vulnerable position who doesn't try to cop a posture as strong and to deny the vulnerability of their position. You know what's happened in America today? In America today, every man has tried to turn his wife into another man. That's what's happened. And we've done it pretty well. I can tell you I've done it. I remember when I was first married, I was so proud of what a good worker my wife was and how tough she was. One of the reasons I married her was that when I stood on my head on a cliff in Kentucky one time, right at the edge, that woman that I was interested in marrying came over and stood on her head right next to me. And I used to brag about what guts, that wasn't the word I used, but what guts my wife had. You know? And then when I took jobs, I would say to them, now you understand, if you're hiring me, you're hiring my wife also. I don't want any complaints that my wife is doing the work. She can do it. I can do it. It's only under those terms that I take the job. So I got hired as a full-time custodian of a big Presbyterian church in Madison, Wisconsin. And uh, those were the terms under which I got hired. And I gave my terms to the head of the Forest Products Lab who had just retired and was now the executive pastor at this church. And he agreed to them. It took him a bit. You know, he was old school, benighted, ignorant, stupid. I, I enlightened him. And uh, so one day, Mary Lee was out cutting the grass on the little Ford tractor. They had a lot of grass. And we took turns. And a little later that day, I went into the church, and uh, Gordy called me into the office. And he s- sat me down, and he said, Tim, I, I don't want you ha- having Mary Lee cut the grass anymore. And I said, why not? And he said, uh, well, just because it's not best for her to do that. I said, Gordon, you know the terms under which I took this job. I took it saying uh, that what Mary Lee did or I did, it didn't matter who did the job, you know, as long as the work is done and it's done well. That's the terms. He said, yeah, but I think it would be best if Mary Lee didn't cut the grass anymore. And I said, that wasn't the agreement. Why? And he said, well, a neighbor called up and was concerned about her cutting the grass Well, she wasn't just cutting the grass. She was actually cutting the grass with um, Heather on a backpack behind her. (laughs) And what they said is the tractor may, the mower may blow a stone out and it may ricochet off the wall of the church and come back and hit her or the child. Well, then I knew that I was not dealing with logic. You know, that I was dealing with 
people who were still, you know, patronizing to women and and that I would just have to give in. And so Mary Lee didn't cut the grass anymore. Now, what's the point in telling that story? Well, I was a smart, wise young man who knew that everybody before me had been an idiot. And I was intent upon showing them that my wife was different than all the other women that went before her. This was not Mary Lee. This was me. And I used to brag to people about how hard my wife worked. And then one day I was reading a book, and the book said what? It said, you know, I was the kind of man that the only compliment he had for his wife was how hard she worked. And man, that hit me. That hit me right in my heart. And I realized that was me. That I thought the ultimate compliment I could give my wife was that she was a hard worker. And that's what all of America has done to our women. We make them independent of us emotionally. Come on, get with the program. No, I'm tired. You know, uh, I don't want to listen. And then we make jokes about the little lady, you know, and we make jokes with other men talking about how I don't understand my wife. And the real reason we can't understand our women is not because they're women. The real reason is because we can't understand anybody other than ourselves. You know, we have absolutely no ability of, of leaving ourselves, which is a god-awful situation to be in. We're so self-centered, so wrapped up in me and myself that nobody that we live next to, if we were in a trench for six months waiting for the artillery fire to come, we could not understand the person next to us who was a man. Probably in the last 10 years, the favorite essay that I have read is by a woman named Peggy Noonan, a Roman Catholic writer who used to write speeches for uh, Ronald Reagan. And after 9-11 hit, she lived in New York and she wrote an essay. And I want to read an excerpt from it because to me, it's just so perfectly addressing this situation of our inability of of even beginning to live in an understanding way with women. She says this. She says, uh, she had written an earlier essay saying God is back in New York after 9-11. And then she wrote this essay called Welcome Back, Duke. If you want to read the whole thing, just look at, just type in Welcome Back, comma, Duke. All right. She says this, men are back too. a certain style of manliness is once again being honored and celebrated in our country since 9-11. She writes this on October 12th. So it's a month later. All right. She says, you might say it suddenly emerged from the rubble of the past quarter century and emerged when a certain kind of man came forth to get our great country out of the fix it was in. I'm speaking of masculine men, men who push things and pull things and haul things and build things, men who charge up the stairs and a hundred pounds of gear and tell everyone else where to go to be safe, men who are welders who do construction, men who are cops and firemen. They're all of them one way or another, the men who put the fire out, the men who are dugging the rubble up and the men who will build whatever takes its place, and their style is back in style. We're experiencing a new respect for their old-fashioned masculinity, a new respect for physical courage, for strength, and for the willingness to use both for the good of others. 
Let me tell you when I first realized what I'm saying. On Friday, September 14th, so this would have been three days after 9-11, I went with friends down to the staging area on the West Side Highway where all the trucks filled with guys coming off of a 12-hour shift at Ground Zero would pass by. They were tough, rough men, the grunts of the city. Construction workers and electrical workers and cops and emergency medical workers and firemen. I joined a group that was just standing there as the truck convoys went by, and all we did was cheer. We all wanted to do some kind of volunteer work, but there was nothing left to do, so we stood and cheered those who were doing. The trucks would go by, and we'd cheer and wave and shout, God bless you, and we love you. We waved flags and signs, clapped and threw kisses, and we meant it. We loved these men, and as the workers would go by, they would wave to us from their trucks and buses and smile and nod. I realized that a lot of them were men who hadn't been applauded since the day they danced to their song with their bride at their wedding. And suddenly I looked around me at all those who were cheering and I saw who we were. Investment bankers, orthodontists, magazine editors. In my group, a lawyer, a columnist, and a writer. We had been the kings and queens of the city, respected professionals in a city that respects its professional class. And this night, we were nobody. We were so useless, all we could do was applaud the somebodies, the workers, who, unlike us, had not been applauded much in their lives. And now they were saving our city. I turned to my friend and I said, I have seen the grunts of New York become kings and queens of the city. I was so moved and oddly, I guess, grateful because they'd always been the people who ran the place, who kept it going. They'd just never been given their due. But now, and the last shall be first, we were making up for it. It may seem that I'm, well, I'm going to skip that down to here. She says this. She says, I should discuss how manliness and its brother gentlemanliness, gentlemanliness went out of style. Now, I want to make a comment here. All of us have, have kissed etiquette goodbye. But I want you to understand that etiquette is the way that a man lives with a woman because she is weaker. That's all etiquette is. Politeness, what you do with your hat, what you do with the door, who's, who takes the first bite at the dinner table. All of this stuff is the way that a man shows a woman that he honors her in her weakness. So when she says this, I should discuss how manliness and its brother gentlemanliness went out of style. She's talking about how politeness went out of style. She says, I can tell you how it went out of style. And she says, I know because I was there. In fact, I may have done it. I remember exactly when I did it. It was in the mid-1970s, and I was in my mid-20s, and a big, nice, middle-aged man got up from his seat to help me haul a big piece of luggage into the overhead compartment on a plane. I was a feminist, and I knew our rules and our rants. I can do it myself, I snapped. It was important that he know women are strong. It was even more important, it turns out, that I know I was a jackass. But I didn't. I embarrassed a nice man who was attempting to help a lady. I wasn't lady enough to let him. I bet he never offered to help a lady again. I bet he became an intellectual. Or a writer. And not a good man like a fireman or a businessman who says, let's roll. But perhaps it wasn't just me. I was there in America as a child when John Wayne was a hero and a symbol of American manliness. He was strong and silent. 
And I was there in America when they killed John Wayne by a thousand cuts. A lot of people killed him, not just feminists, but peaceniks, leftists, intellectuals, others. You could even say it was Woody Allen who did it. Through laughter and an endearing admission of his own nervousness and fear, he made nervousness and fearfulness the admired style. He made not being able to deck the shark, but doing the funniest commentary on not decking the shark seem cool. But when we killed John Wayne, you know who we were left with. We were left with John Wayne's friendly antagonist sidekick in the old John Ford movies, Barry Fitzgerald. The small, nervous, gossiping neighborhood commentator, Barry Fitzgerald, who wanted to talk about everything and do nothing. Well, get the essay and read it. But this is who we have become in America today. We all deny that woman is weaker. We turn him into a man. We don't live with them in an understanding way. And we even get the woman to deny her weakness. And so men today are so perverse that they're attracted to women who are bodybuilders. And working class white men will vote for Hillary Clinton. Let me read an editorial from Sudan Faludin that appeared in the New York Times earlier this week. Um, a couple of days ago, she writes this about Hillary Clinton. In the final stretch of the primary season, Clinton seems to have stepped across an unstated gender divide. We are witnessing a female competitor delighting in the undomesticated fray. Her new no-holds-barred pugnacity and gleeful perseverance have revamped her image in the eyes of begrudging white male voters. It's the unforeseen precedent of an unprecedented candidacy. Not once has she demanded that the umpire stop the fight. Indeed, she's asking for more unregulated action, proposing a debate with no press corps intermediaries. While the commentators, now listen to this, while the commentators have been tut-tutting, Senator Clinton has been converting white males, assuring them that she's come into their tavern not to smash the bottles, but to join the brawl. Now, what is that a reference to? Do you know? That's a reference to the teetotaling woman who would go into bars, taverns, named Carrie Nation, and she'd smash the alcohol. In other words, the old type of woman knew what destroyed the home and went in and tried to, tried to, 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 to get rid of the alcohol. Now, I'm not a teetotaler. Nevertheless, you understand, she was a woman. Yeah, she was bad, but she at least was headed in the right. But Hillary Clinton, she's in there to show the men that she can fight with the best of them. While the commentators have been tut-tutting, Senator Clinton has been converting white males, assuring them that she's coming to their tavern not to smash the bottles, but to join the brawl. The strategy has certainly remade the political world for future female politicians who may now cast off the assumption that when the going gets tough, the tough girl will resort to unilateral rectitude. When a woman does ascend through the glass ceiling into the White House, it will be in part because of the race of 2008 when Hillary Clinton broke through the glass floor and got down with the boys. That's who we are. If you think Hillary Clinton is any different from you, you're wrong. We always elect the leaders that we want. And you say, what's this we, white man? 
And I say to you, Hillary Clinton is me. Bill Clinton is me. Chelsea Clinton is my children. We have not lived with our mothers and our wives in an understanding way, but instead we've turned them into men. That's what we've done. And you say, well, what does this have to do with Jesus Christ? And I say, Jesus Christ is the one that says to us that we are to live with our wives in an understanding way as a weaker vessel. And that we're to treat her with honor. And so do you know what the gospel is to Chelsea Clinton? The gospel is that God is a father from whom all fatherhood gets its name. And no father can claim to be a father except insofar as he reflects the fatherhood of God. And Chelsea Clinton says, well, what is the fatherhood of God like? And you know what the Christian says to her? The Christian says the fatherhood of God is a fatherhood that delights in sacrificing himself for his wife and his children. He's a father who would not dream of sending his daughter to Iraq or to Afghanistan. He's a father who, unlike me, changes dirty diapers. I mean, don't, don't get the idea that this is a, a, a peon to me as a good father and a husband. This is a peon to the fatherhood of God. Do you think that if God gave his own son to pay the penalty for our sins, that he would not change a dirty diaper? <laughs> Do you think God would use his wife's weakness as an opportunity to insult her? And you realize that's what many of us do. Many of us make fun of our wives' weaknesses. Think of the weaknesses that... Even I will not mention in public. And think of the jokes we make about them. Think of that. Can you imagine how callous and insensitive we are to women today? And the Bible tells us what? That the gospel, the gospel is that husbands are to live with their wives in an understanding way. David is going like this to me, which means I'm done. <laughs> the hook is about to grab my... <laughs> Bye. <laughs> so do you live with your wives in an understanding way? And the answer is no, you do not. So how to change? Change always comes from the Holy Spirit. In other words, change is a gift from God. And how do you get a gift from God? The way you get a gift from God is by getting on your knees and pleading with Him to change you. If you've grown up with a father who is like a certain president who I will not name. You get down on your knees and you plead with God to keep you from being a father like that. A father who is unfaithful to his wife. 
a father who limits his wife to one child. So it's a lifestyle choice. A father who goes into the delivery room and his wife is at his greatest weakness and vulnerability says to her, look at you, you're disgusting. And that's what America has done to its women. Let me tell you something. God says what? Here's what God says. God says that he has chosen what? He has chosen not the intellectuals and not the writers and not the preachers and not even the firemen. The Bible tells us that God has chosen the weak things of the world and the things that are not rather than the things that are. If you don't see the beauty and the godliness, if you don't see the glory of womanhood, womanhood, not personhood, womanhood, motherhood, and if you don't see that in every woman, married, single, with children, without them, and if you don't treat them like women, then you don't know God. You do not know God. Now, you women, if you don't live like that, vulnerable, then you don't know God either. Because what are you doing? Well, you're living in fear. You know what the feminist said? She said, a lot of us women are becoming the men that we wanted to marry. A lot of us feminists. And so, women, give yourselves to vulnerability. It is beautiful. Trust me. Men love to be needed by women. Why do you think men fall into adultery? It's not because of sex. I trust me. It's because of compassion. And you say, what? I've never read that. Just talk to any counselor. They'll tell you this. Men want to be helpers. All right? So, so don't try to stiff arm your way through life like Hillary Clinton. Don't do it. Give yourself to the vulnerability and weakness that God has made intrinsic to womanhood. And God will be your defender. And if you are married to a fool of a husband who takes advantage of that, then God will deal with him. Let's pray.